I am Rachel. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Movement Toward Change podcast. We are using dance as a means to cultivate community and start conversation. Today we are honored to speak with Dominique A. Dempsey. Dominique, also known as the Dancing Diplomat, is a student researcher, choreographer, innovator, and collaborator. She's currently a senior at American University, double majoring in international relations and dance. She's extremely passionate about foreign policy, international arts advocacy, and dance accessibility. Dominique founded AU's chapter of Movement Exchange, which strives to offer accessible dance classes to youth in the local DMV community and to those abroad. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about yourself and what inspired you to begin dancing? Well, yes. Hi. Thank you first, Rachel and Nicole, for having me on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Um, And to answer that question, I can't really remember when I took my first dance class. I, my mom said I've always been dancing, like even in her womb, (laughs) but I think my first like formal dance class was when I was five. Um, And, you know, you do the ballet tap, you know, jazz combination. Um, And actually I really didn't see myself majoring in dance when I went to college. Like I went just to pursue international relations and then AU founded its Um, dance major when I got there and I was like it's fate like I have to do it now (laughs) Um, and so that's kind of uh, the beginning of like me looking at dance as more than just a passion um, and like a pastime and really seeing it as an academic you know experience as well as one that offers so many other benefits personally to myself Um, but definitely now that's that's kind of my new view on dance. And I'm inspired by dance every day um, because there's just so many intersections that it has for you to explore. Uh, So yeah, that's, I hope that answered. (laughs) Yeah. And how did the dancing diplomat come to be? Yeah. So I, (laughs) it's kind of funny because the movement exchange, they kind of call people like dancing diplomats. And I was like, hmm, that has a fancy like ring to it. Like they call anyone who joins one of their chapters or like a part of the organization dancing diplomats. But I think it kind of expands past the organization itself um, because I feel like a dancing diplomat is someone who aims to make dance accessible, aims to, uh, you know, explore the intersections that dance has. Um, and really looking at dance as a soft power and a, a means of cross-cultural communication, which I feel like anyone can do because I feel like the first thing we learn to do is we talk, we sing, but then we move. Um, and I think that on a basis level right there, like um, everyone has the capacity to be a dancing diplomat. So that's why I like to like call myself now and start that conversation with people. So, yeah. Nice. <laughs> that's so cool. Um, and in what ways have you have your two majors of dance and international relations helped inform each other? Yeah, so um, funny story. When I first went to the uh, international relations advising office, undergraduate advising office to tell them that I wanted to be a dance double major uh, with my R- IR major, they were just like, huh? Like why in your, why ever? Would you want to do that? Like the two disciplines don't have any like overlaps in classes. Like it's probably going to take you five years to graduate, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, like um, 
I definitely disagreed with them. And obviously like now I'm here, you know, proven that you can do it in four years. And now there's so many more people coming after me that are like, you know, doing the uh, both of the majors together and showing that dance is a means again of like cross-cultural conversation and also um, a soft power um, that allows you to learn more about one's culture. Um, I definitely like going to um, Israel with Rachel when we went um, and taking Gaga and learning it. Just like, I feel like it made me learn so much more about Israeli culture and visiting the, you know, the dance and the art scene that I could have ever learned, like just sitting in a classroom. Um, and so that right there, I feel like is the main um, way I see my two majors, you know, intersect and um, complement each other because international relations, I'm my focus is like diplomacy, human rights. Um, and so like, I'm all about like having those con uncomfortable conversations, meeting new people, learning about other people's cultures and dance is the perfect means of allowing for that to happen. Um, you could see something on a stage, you could take a class um, and it allows for those, those re you know, those interactions to happen when we're just talking to someone, it may not be as comfortable or you may not get as deep um, as you could if you take a class or see a show. Um, etc. So I think definitely that's like how they have complemented each other really well. In what ways would you like to continue merging these two subjects? I definitely see <laughs> uh, me like keep to like keep looking for the intersections that they have and merging them um, in pursuit of my like master's degree. Right now I'm looking at public diplomacy programs and intercultural um, communications programs that allow for you to explore specifically like how foreign service can directly correspond to blah 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 like an art form to a you know journalism to doc you know making documentaries um, but they allow you to like see dance as a valid means of communication and um people laugh at the soft powers, but I'm like, but you watch a television show, but you know, you like go on Instagram, but you, you know, you engage with art every day and never underestimate the, you know, the power of art, the power that dance can have um, because, you know, it's what we, I feel like we interact with that mostly on a daily basis, whether we, you know, recognize that or not. So definitely going to school to continue to pursue those interactions and then hopefully um, to continue to, do dancing through colorism workshops. Um, and they're kind of uh, workshops I made to have conversations about colorism through dance. Uh, and I definitely wanna keep having those because I feel like I learned so much more about dance in itself and how younger minds process having difficult conversations through dance. I call them embodied conversations because <laughs> they're forced to take what they know um, when they like know the definition of colorism in their head, but then they're forced to like dance through that definition and show their ash their actual grasp on the topic through their bodies. So, you know, going to school uh, to get my master's and then also um, continue to do colorism healing, excuse me, not colorism healing, dancing through colorism workshops um, as I go forward. So those are kind of the two ways. Nice. And you often refer to dance as an embodied practice, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's something that 
um, I feel like it's very academic of us to say that like it's an embodied practice, but it, it really is. Um, we call like I would call like we call dance at my school at least embodied knowledge because it's literally knowledge that your body knows. Dance is the manifest the, the manifestation of your body functioning and like performing a vocabulary. You know, you when you learn Horton, you learn a vocabulary. You learn, you know, the culture around it. You learn the history around it. When you do um, ballet, Graham, whatever, you know, Lamone, you learn all those different, you know, knowledges, um, those vocabularies, the vernaculars that they have, and then you put them in your body and you're perf- actively doing that embodied knowledge, that en- embodied practice. So yes, I would agree, Rachel, like so, like so much that it is, um, an embodied practice and embodied knowledge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, I hadn't often thought of it that way, but then I remember the first time you referred to dance as an embodied practice. I was like, yeah, that that's really what it is. It's like, we're taking these different toolboxes of different languages almost. And then we're exploring those within our own bodies, which then makes them different on each person. It's the same toolbox, but it, is different on each person because they're their own body. Yeah. That's, oh, that's beautiful. I, that's so true. Um, because you can learn the same, you know, same steps and then it looks completely different on somebody else, but that, but there's still, you know, correct, you know, demonstrations of that and not that knowledge, that vocabulary, that language that you've learned. So, yeah. Um, how can dance teachers and educators create a classroom environment that's inclusive for all individuals? Yeah, this one, this one is, is such a like huge question that we could talk about for like ever (laughs) because there's so many ways to make the classroom more accessible. I think one major thing Um, that I think is an obstacle for, you know, students becoming professionals or, um, you know, like taking classes is the money factor. Like dance classes are not cheap. They are super, super, super expensive. Um, And I definitely think that's one, like one thing that the dance community as a whole, we need to look at like making classes affordable for students to take them for even like college students to take classes, um, you know, outside of their major or whatever. Um, And I also think inside the classroom, there are ways to accommodate for um, like uh, parents, like body type, body, um, like the clothing required. Like, is it really necessary all the time that everyone wears a leotard and tights? Is it necessary that the mirrors are open, you know, all the time in the studio? Like, do you cover the mirrors um, and really allow for people to um, not focus on looking at themselves or comparing themselves to other dancers in the room, but really thinking about how do I like know the steps myself? And I understand like you need the mirrors to see, you know, your lines and, you know, for, for things like that. But also I think there's so much to be learned and creating a level playing field in the, in the, in a, in a dance room by really, um, allowing students to take that space for themselves and not have to focus on just their appearance and how they look. Cause also dance has a lot to do with, um, executing clear intentions. 
when you're moving. Um, so those are kind of the two ways I was thinking about that. I hope I answered in that way, like what you were thinking, what we were thinking about, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I think that financial factor is a huge barrier because, you know, we can dance in our homes, of course, so we can dance on the sidewalk, but I mean, a lot of the essence of dance is to be in the classroom and to have that community feeling. And so if you are, if you are, if you're limited to the, that experience, it can be, create challenges for sure. Yeah. And I, I just want like, even seeing dance, like seeing dance, seeing anything on stage, which we, like, I miss so much <laughs> right now due to COVID, just like going to see a show going to see what's happening in the dance field right now is just very, it's very hard because dance is definitely a thing that is community. It is tactile. It is, you know, we need to do floor work. So it's having that space to like, you know, get sweaty with other bodies and contact improvisation, like all these things that are essential to different dance forms that we can't do. Um, but when we, hopefully when we get back into the room, we start to think about, you know, more ways we can make the space accessible and things accessible to many different people. And so switching gears a little bit, um, I know we've been hearing a lot about different um, ways that the structure of dance can lead to different almost racist practices um, without even us really knowing. So what role can white allies play within a dance classroom? Yeah. Um, this is an interesting, like an interesting question, um, because I feel like it depends on, you know, like what studio you go to, what college you go to, like what your classroom is composed of. Um, and I think the, the thing that I you know, expect from my white peers who are in a classroom with me is to one, just like not tolerate, uh, you know, racist behaviors within the room or appropriation within the, within the dance space, which obviously doesn't happen all, you know, all the time or ever. Um, I think it's, you know, learning about the history behind jazz or the history behind an urban form before just doing it. It's about learning about um, the culture of a form because, you know, for urban forms, hip hop, jazz, locking, you know, whacking, voguing, uh, all these different things. Um, they have, you know, unique histories just like other white forms of dance or Eurocentric forms of dance and really to be aware of them and do the research yourself um, and also just not asking the other black dancer that's in the room, like, um, you know, don't, I mean, like for my friends, if they ask me a question, like, of course I'm going to answer, but like, don't expect, you know, a black dancer in the room to have to answer your question about a form. Um, and, you know, do the, I really say like, do the research on your own, put the time in on your own. Um, Google is there, 1-800-GOOGLE, as I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, definitely when you put the work in yourself and you research, then things will make sense. Um, and then you ask questions when they're necessary. And then you can also be a better ally and be 
you know, better equipped to be like, hey, that I don't think that was correct. Um, And so then you can then therefore go to the dean or go to whoever, uh, you know, going forward, then you're aware of things that are uncomfortable or, you know, a little racist in the in the studio when they happen by being well informed yourself. So I think that's one way I would like my white allies to step it up. Don't ask me all the questions, but go to Google (laughs) and look it up too. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think that speaking from personal experience, sometimes, you know, I, I take a style of dance that's not a Eurocentric form and, um, I don't know the history of it. And so then I'm just assuming that it's being taught the right way. But now that yeah. I, I think I know a, a bit more of the history than I did before, I can kind of make those judgments for myself when I take one of those classes, like, oh, this is being taught honoring the history or it's we're not really honoring the history when we teach this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think another, I think also another way is also like supporting those, you know, black artists or, you know, um, what do they say? Like POC artists as well, who have these forms and like, you know, advocating for them to come to your studio to do a master class or, you know, whatever it is by being like, well, if there's an option between a white jazz, you know, person coming and doing a, a master class or someone who is black and who has studied and like, you know, done the whole spiel, then maybe advocating for someone else who is familiar with the form who has the credentials as well to come teach you. Um, so also that is a way as well by supporting those financially <laughs> as well, supporting those, you know, um, black indigenous and POC artists. Mm. And I feel like you answered this next question actually perfectly. I was going to ask, how can this role be extended to the community as a whole? But um, I mean, I don't think it's ever going to go away. Like this fascination with Eurocentric styles of dance. And I mean, to an extent, that's fine because they also have validity and spaces, you know, um, and they, you know, um, as well. So I, I think the one thing that the dance world has a problem with though is kind of having this hierarchy of forms that they do where they're like ballet is the end all be all and then it's modern. And then any other style after that is invalid and it's a cultural folk form or, you know, it's like not a valid technique within itself. And when in reality, the form should just be like this and like a nice long, you know, flat kind of flat structure where it's like each form is valid in their own being because you have to study, you know, hip hop for years and years to become a master. You have to study ballet for years and years. You have to study West African to become a master, you know, um, or, you know, whatever. So like each form has its own vigorous training that you have to do. and, And it shouldn't matter if someone doesn't, you know, know how to do ballet that they're then they're like oh you're not a valid dancer or you're not um you know you're not (laughs) I don't know what the word is but you're just not doing it right (laughs) like so I think that's one thing that um, the dance world definitely needs to work on is um even when the way people talk they're just like even vernacular like 
<laughs> ballet terminology doesn't necessarily apply to every form either. So like when you're in a West African class, okay, yeah, it's a plie, but maybe it's not called a plie, like, you know, so it's also like learning the vernacular and um, treating each form as its own that like ballet didn't determine what was happening in West African. Do you know what I mean? Like, because ballet is here, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you can define everything that happens to West African with ballet terminology. Like it's, whoa, it's a little weird. <laughs> so um, I think that's something also just to add on kind of what I said earlier. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. And just the assumption that everyone has this ballet background and knows what you're talking about when they say to do a tondu or something like. Yeah. Someone could be super knowledgeable and a completely different kind of dance. And that doesn't mean that they're not a great dancer. Yep. Yeah. What are some actions individuals might take that they think are helpful um, to aid in diversifying the dance community, to be more inclusive, to do, let's say, the right thing, but, but in reality, they're, they're actually harmful? There's definitely a lot <laughs> right now. I can, I'm really only thinking about like the, the competition pieces that I see where it's like, all right, all these like, you know, white ballerinas uh, that have been trained in ballet are going to do a hip hop piece. Like we're deciding to be cool and like, you know, we're going to do something a little different and show that we are accepting of different forms and just do a hip hop piece that was taught by like a white instructor. So I think there's definitely a way to go about um, engaging in those. Like, it doesn't mean like you can never do hip hop. Like, I'm never saying that. Like, yes, please take that hip hop class and support those artists. But definitely being aware that it's just like, this is not just like something that's different. Like there's also like people who are serious about that form um, and who've been trained in that form and who um, can, you know, have history in that form that you should be aware of. And again, that comes back to like research and making um, and just like creating spaces that accept that. Cause I also don't think it's like you come into a studio and a teacher sits down and gives you a, a 50 page PowerPoint about African, like how African forms have influenced hip hop or jazz. I think it's just saying things while you're teaching the combination also. It's like incorporating it into your teaching style um, and making people aware as you're going about it. And like coming, I have a, there is a professor at my school, Britta J. Peterson. And I think she does a great job of, she teaches jazz and she's a white woman, but she does a great job of immediately before, like, you know, jazz classes being like, I am a white woman teaching you a black form. Like I'm coming from a place of privilege to teach you this form. And this is the history and you can look up more and I'll provide you with the resources, but I just want you to know while we're going into this. So like just saying like that and like, you know, putting it out there and just being honest. Um, and then just like, you know, giving history while you're going across the floor. Yes. When you're doing the move or whatever. Um, it's not all the time, just like a, a lecture or 50, like a 50 page PowerPoint presentation. Um, it's also just like incorporating it into your everyday situation in the studio or performance opportunities. Mm. And I think as a white individual, as someone that's hoping to teach dance we also have to be okay with making mistakes yeah you know like 
interviewing or speaking about cross training, I was like, I have lots of experience talking about cross training. I feel totally comfortable when it comes to talking about, you know, white supremacy in the classroom. I was like, it's a little bit harder for me to talk about these things because I haven't had the same experiences as I have with cross training. But I think having that mindset of it's, it's okay to make mistakes. I'm not going to be perfect at this should maybe be something that white uh, teachers embody <laughs> that, that, yeah. that might happen, that, that making mistakes is okay. It's kind of part of the process. I agree. I agree. Like nobody is perfect. And um, I think the pursuit of being anti-racist is a living state of being like it's not going to come to a like a point ever where you you never say something that's problematic or you never for anyone even people of color like you know there's never going to be a point where you don't say something like that's totally politically correct or whatever but the point is being willing to like admit maybe you did wrong um and then figuring out how that doesn't happen again so I definitely agree like it's it's a learning living learning experience where you have to keep learning and keep trying the point is to actively try you know like actively be trying as you mess up yeah Um, and I know you spoke a little bit to this already but um could you speak to the dance community's value placed on more Eurocentric styles of dance and how we can kind of shift away from those ideas um yeah I definitely also like going circling back to the viewing it as a hierarchy where it's like ballet and then is on the top and then modern is the second um, or however you want to view that and still like viewing other art forms as valid you know technical art forms within themselves Um, and I and yes I think I don't know how we really shift away from these things um, at all I don't really like I don't have the answer for that um and so but I do think it I I feel like the best means to do that is again by like education and research I'm I love research so I'm going to talk about that all the time (laughs) while we're in this podcast because I love just learning and looking up things um that's how I try to do better and learn myself and so I think that could help also other people because I feel like some people they always like feign ignorance like they're like oh I didn't know that like there was this huge culture around blah 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 or whatever art form and I'm like really like (laughs) like you could google it (laughs) like um the public like library has like you know resources for you to look up in the database but um anyway I feel like that's one thing where it's just like the the you know the resources are out there you just have to learn how to access them to understand things better Um, And so I think that's kind of one way I think we can move away from that. I'm curious to hear if you guys have any ideas about that, because that's an interesting, we have so many years of like teachers doing that, like, and still teachers today telling us that like, you know, ballet or modern is a form you need to, you need to get to be it, to get, to get that role, (laughs) to get that audition, you know, so yeah, yeah, no, I think it's so important to just to educate yourself about everything. And honestly, like when you're younger and when you're able to, if you're at a studio or something, taking a, co- a little bit of everything and seeing what you like and enjoy doing. And that way you kind of do get this knowledge of everything and it's, you 
hopefully don't see a hierarchy where just ballet is on the top, like you said. Yeah, I think it can be challenging, especially if you're younger and you're in a studio environment where that's what your teachers are telling you. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I guess my biggest hope would be that if you're continuing to pursue dance, that once you get to college, you can break free of those ideas. And you can also, I feel like once you get to college and you're in academia, there's more of a desire to research and to learn about these other styles and to broaden and diversify your, your knowledge base of dance. So um, I think also potentially funding, like, you know, ballet companies are, it seems to be getting the most amount of funding to produce their work. And so if we can also have funds, I know this is a whole other topic with dance funding and arts management, but if we can maybe get some more of the funds to go to companies that are rooted in jazz, West African, flamenco, if we could have more funding, then those companies can reach a larger audience. It's a little more challenging. We don't have a lot of funding to reach a larger audience. Yeah, I agree. I also, I was thinking about like, not everyone, the funding comes down to also like access. Like if you're in a smaller town or, you know, in a more remote place, you may not have such a big like West African dance community or, you know, whatever urban form community, then you would have like a traditional ballet tap jazz um, thing going for you. But if you're in a city, you may have more access to, you know, companies and things like that. So also it's like, how do we expose these, you know, like students who are, you know, beginning to love dance and get familiar with the form and show them already that there's so many forms out there so that also comes down to like funding and access and all those, all those big, big things that the arts always we have difficulties with. So, okay. uh, where do you gather your inspiration, your creative process and choreographic works? Ooh, this is a, a huge question. <laughs> um, I think the first thing definitely is personal interest personal experience. Um, in 2018, I believe, <laughs> I believe I choreographed a dance called um, Go Play in the Sun for a student showcase here at American. Um, and it was really based, it was inspired by my relationship with my skin um, and um, being told when I like was younger that I was you know, like too dark. Um, and so colorism, sorry for those who don't know, I won't assume, um, but colorism is the tendency to perceive or behave negatively uh, towards members of a racial category based on the lightness or darkness of their skin tone. Um, and I know I didn't read that. I just have had to say the definition so many times, but it's okay. Um, but it's basically something that's affected me a lot. Um, and so a lot of my choreographic slash like research work in my undergraduate career has been based around it. And I didn't realize how much it impacted me, but definitely those personal experiences um, have impacted me and I get inspiration from them. I also get inspiration from 
seeing other dancers and like dance at work. Um, and that's also something that has been hard for me during COVID because I'm used to like going to see a show or, you know, like um, dancing with friends at like an improv jam or something, you know, to that extent where you feel inspired and connected um, in this huge world of dance and, you know, thinking of all the possibilities of things you could, you can create. Um, and so that's something I definitely find inspiration from to choreograph, to research. Also teaching the little kitties. <laughs> Like I love working with um, elementary and like middle and high school students. I love the elementary kids because they're just so excited. They're at the point where they're just like, they're sponges. So they're absorbing everything um, and they're not bossy yet. So they're not mean to you, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but I just love working with them because they just remind you of how fun it is to dance. Like it is fun. At the end of the day, dance is fun. Okay. It's hard work. Yes. It takes training. Yes. You know, um, and you may cry and sweat a lot, but you also will laugh. You also make, you know, meaningful relationships with other people. Um, you also like have just great experiences. Dance is fun. Um, and just being inspired when it's like getting hard or, you know, you're facing different things <laughs> by just coming back to that. You're like the reason why you're dancing, um, and working with those students who still just see every bit of movement as a fun experience. So definitely those three things keep me inspired and grounded to keep making work, um, even amidst COVID. <laughs> so, yeah. I love that you said dance is fun. I had my final <laughs> ballet goals paper due my goals for the semester and my first paragraph was that I just want to have fun in the class of course I'm going to work hard I'm going to take the corrections but I just I feel like I'm at this interesting point where I almost just take it a little too seriously in my type a tendencies I'm just the fun is just lowered a few notches and I want to keep the hard work but Bring up the fun a little more. <laughs> it's very easy to take it too seriously and to, yeah. <laughs> um, what would be your number one piece of advice for the movement toward change dance community? Uh, to definitely keep dancing. Um, keep dancing when it gets hard, keep dancing. When you feel uninspired, um, keep dancing. When you've gotten the same correction for the fifth time, you know, um, keep dancing to inspire someone else, to inspire yourself. Um, I have one teacher that tells us sometimes she's like, all right, now just be selfish. Like not in the sense that you're being mean, but really take that time to dance, to dance for yourself, because also dance is a form where you are seen and like half the time you're dancing for the audience, not half, like 99.5% of the time you're dancing for the audience, for the audience to be engaged, for them to get what they want, for them to understand, you know, whatever intention you have. And very little of the time do you really just do a dance for yourself. So also remembering that, you know, dance also like 
why are you doing it? Are you doing it for the audience? Are you doing it for yourself? Um, but to take that time to, you know, have that freedom to dance for your actual self, um, keep conducting movement research, like keep asking those movement questions um, and researching through movement in ways that you would like to move and also in ways that you feel like no one else has moved before, ask questions before, keep having embodied conversations um, with other people, with, you know, with yourself. Definitely. I think that was, that was a lot of, a lot to say to the, to the audience, but kind of, um, yeah, I think that's what I would like to say to them. <laughs> what is your process um, for conducting movement research? Yeah, I, it varies. Um, a lot of times when I do movement research, it's, I have an idea, a prompt, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to take my journal into the studio. We're going to like, you know, we're going to work it out. We're going to try this out. If it doesn't work, we make notes, we try something else. It also looks like sometimes making a score, which is basically like a written, um, a written, you know, list or story of movements, you know, or like a, a bunch of things you would like to try out and you don't know how it's going to look, but you have those list of movements and you can figure them out and move them around in different ways. So those are definitely ways that I conduct movement research. Um, yeah, that it's such a fun process <laughs> when you're excited to like make a score and try it out. <laughs> in, in this moment, is there a specific quote that speaks to you? Um, I talked about research a lot, so I think I should <laughs> tell a quote about research, but uh, Zora Neale Hurston, she, I love her so much. She's one of my favorite authors, but she has this quote where she says um, that research, what did you say? Research is formalized curiosity. I can't remember the second part, but she says it's formalized curiosity. Um, and so to conduct that, you know, movement research, one of my teachers, also Aaron, I have to shout her out. Shout out all my professors because I love them. But Aaron Foreman Murray, EFM, she's also she's always like, yeah, to start movement research, you have to be curious. You have to be curious about something first, you know. And so I think um, that is kind of the quote I I really look back to because research is just like, what are you curious about? What are you gonna poke and pry? What are you gonna want to you know learn about learn learn more about? through movement, through, you know, written things, whatever it is, but yeah. <laughs> nice. This was great. Thank you so much. much. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. I could talk about dance and movement research all day. <laughs> <laughs> we might have a part two with Dominique Dempsey, everyone. <laughs> If you have further questions for Dominique, you can contact her on Instagram at D-D-O-M-O-D-D -D -D, or through our website.